The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 2, Setting a Path to Power for the People, Part 1. With the election of the Labor Party to government in Australia in 2022, the chances that First Nations will succeed in a referendum enshrining a voice for them in the Constitution have been significantly increased. It will be a truly joyful moment when it arrives, hopefully before 2025. Research shows that a majority of Australians in 2021 were in favour of enshrining an Indigenous voice in the Constitution, and there is every reason to think that barring churlish obstruction by any petulant parliamentarians jealous of sharing power, a referendum on that question will succeed. But as shown above, the particular constitution in which we may enshrine a voice for First Nations is itself incapable of giving effect to a voice sufficient to ensure all their children will flourish. Even if in the process of the referendum, the Parliament sees fit to delete the racist powers from the Constitution and or clarify that laws can be made for the Aboriginal race which discriminate in favour of them, not against them, this would only be the first step towards giving them enough power over their destiny to ensure their children will flourish. It would be an extremely important step, but still only the first one. And even if they navigate their way safely through a referendum process to establish the voice in an institutional form that may satisfy, at least as a start, what Australian Indigenes would find is that they have simply landed in the same place that all Australians have been stuck in since 1901, and have been even more firmly stuck in since 2001, a place of powerlessness in relation to all those who still can and do act without restraint under the Constitution, and who admit no obligation to the future of the people of Australia, let alone to the future we might prefer. The race's power might be ditched in the process of enshrining a voice for First Nations, come the day. But this would in no way leave the path free to establish a voice sufficient for the degree of self-determination, that is, the degree of power, all Australians will need, if we are to outrun the perfect storm of existential threats I discussed in Chapter 1, before that storm overwhelms us. If the decade of coalition government from Abbott to Morrison shows us anything, the period now commonly and justly referred to as the lost decade, it demonstrates with alarming clarity how useless our democracy can become if it is left in the hands of those determined to frustrate the wider interests of the nation for narrow, sectional, corporate and political interests. That lost decade is the precautionary fact that impels the need for change in the distribution of power that I am arguing for here. To achieve the required level of self-determination, it will be necessary to lift the power of all Australians well above the level of the essentially voiceless. In short, it will be necessary to step up from the merely representative system of governance we call a democracy and jump to a fuller, genuine mode of democracy, participatory democracy. Such a jump is entirely feasible, 
But it is not possible with a constitution which gives no power to the people and creates no framework, processes or institutions to ensure that their power will be respected and enduring. Nor will it be possible unless the constitution is rebuilt so that it defines for the first time what the nation stands for, what we value, what we regard as inalienable rights and what we envisage as the minimum necessary capacity to design our preferred future our willingly shared destiny, and determine our preferred path towards it. At its heart, that necessary minimum capacity can only be secured if all Australians are empowered with a voice. And to be powerful, that voice must be vested in Australians in a particular form. It must be enshrined in the Constitution as a right of access to an ongoing process which can continuously enable the people to drive the nation via the safest paths toward a future in which every single one of us may find a place to survive and flourish in all our diverse essentials. In short, it must be a voice that makes the people's sovereign will clear. A constitution with that sort of capacity is likely to spark a significant transformation in the arrangement of power as it prevails now in the modern Hobbesian state. In essence, the people will no longer be relegated to mere subjects of the Crown or any other unitary sovereign, say, a parliament or executive government operating in disregard of the public interest. Nor may their will be subverted to or by the decisions of the Crown. Instead, the sovereign will emanates from the people and the Parliament is charged as a servant of their will, a will they can give voice to by expressing their values, rights and aspirations. That voice is essentially pluralist and yet integrated, the many in the one. This makes it very different to the sovereign voice permitted in the modern Hobbesian, that is Australian, state. A voice which should be described as the one over the many, like the state represented in the frontispiece of Leviathan. Throughout this book, I will elaborate on this proposed new arrangement of power and sovereignty and the type of voice necessary to establish and stabilise it. But for the moment, it is simply necessary to say that the process for expressing that voice must be enabled in the Constitution. The path to that sort of powerful voice for a people's will has never yet been trod in a Western democracy. But Australia has actually been warming up to it for at least half a century. In 1967, Indigenous Australians sought to be counted as Australians in the census, and this resulted in the most resounding referendum yes vote since Federation. Almost 91% of Australians voted yes to proposals to extend the power to the Commonwealth to make laws for Aboriginals and to count them in the census as Australians. Ironically, this change was achieved by deleting mention of Aboriginals from the Constitution, meaning that at the very moment they could finally be counted, they were also expunged from the Constitution itself. Nevertheless, the result was an unambiguous endorsement that Australians want an inclusive society and have wanted it for a long time. There is still a long way to go to be free from racism. So, in that sense, 
there is still a long way to go before everyone might be willing to accept that everyone else should have a voice. Indeed, Australians are still steeped in the habit of assuming that if they are to get what they need and want, their voice must rise above, if not delete, all others. In other words, their voice must be politically successful at the ballot box and must overwhelm the diverse voices of others. In this arrangement, the result at a ballot box ejects the legitimate agendas and basic needs of large swathes of the population. However, this happens only because people have not found a way yet to assemble their diverse voices in an orderly manner so that they can each be heard. They have certainly not found a way to do this on a national scale and in such a way as to make it unnecessary for majorities to exclude the voices of minorities. They have not found a way to organise a new national democratic open forum, what some proponents of democracy would call a public square, where voices can actually be heard as opposed to merely expressed and integrated into a coherent statement of inclusive will that supports the diversity of needs. In the age of the internet, however, the means of organising the public square on a national scale has arrived. Never has there been a more completely open platform on which any person may seek out what they need and want to know for free and express any opinion that they may have for free. The voices we and our politicians get to hear may no longer be selected or dismissed by gatekeeper publishers and journalists. That has created the space for virtual community engagement in which voices can specify their objectives for the governments they elect. Instead of being confined to the national voting process, in which we basically give carte blanche and a blank cheque to politicians to do what they like, voices can introduce specificity about the national will. People can set the direction of the nation so that it is inclusive, rather than leave it to those who have the money to buy governments. Of course, we may feel the internet is not a suitable place for this process. After all, it has been an impersonal, dehumanising and divisive force in communications. But if organised properly, a space can be created on it to enable the building of a full, genuine, open democracy. One which can work to produce what we might come to recognise as a rehumanised agenda. Probably, the internet is the only space where such an agenda can be built by the people so that it works efficiently and effectively on a national scale for the people. Chapter 2, Part 2, Scaling Up to a Participatory Democracy At this point, it is probably wise to ask what we might gain in the form and strength of our democracy if we establish a new central public square on the internet on a national scale. Can democracy be organised at a national level so that it provides each of us with the practical possibility of more efficient and effective involvement in our own governance? To answer that, it will be helpful to step back and consider what democracy was always meant to be about and then assess whether a new open forum will deliver a better form of democracy, one that is genuinely inclusive because it is efficient and accessible by all. 
The type of large-scale, open, democratic forum that I have suggested here can be usefully compared and contrasted with the much smaller public square that operated at the dawn of democracy in Athens, an open space and political system which obliged all those enfranchised to contribute to public debate, notably before voting, and to take their turn in administration of a public office. This inclusive form of duty and active participation in governance was the original intention of Athenian democracy. And it worked well for a time because it was applied on a small scale. Only property-owning men were franchised and the city itself was small geographically and in population. But expansion of that fledgling model of democracy so that it may operate on a wider scale has hitherto been a challenge that no government has been willing to step up to. As populations and territories expanded over the centuries, they instead developed alternative concepts of self-rule, none of which found a way to efficiently assemble power, territory and sovereignty on a large, fully inclusive, that is, fully democratic, scale. Democracy did not scale up. In fact, Western governments, as they design constitutions, have displayed a history of fear of democracy, spurred no doubt by the fact that power is fleeting and that the few who have it must be eternally vigilant against the many who do not. Fear of the mob, as it has been called, has kept democracy at bay for centuries. Sometimes this fear has been spoken of, sometimes not. In the making of the American Constitution, for instance, the founders displayed no will to create a democracy and designed a system which could have no other effect than to keep it at bay. In that case, sovereignty was instead quite deliberately encoded as a republic. The American Constitution says, quote, The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on the application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence, unquote. As it is framed in the US Constitution, that republican form of government is decidedly not a democracy. It makes space for nothing like the open discourse of the Athenian square. It is pure Hobbes, a state in which the monarch has simply been redressed as a system of representative government, one in which the people have no more power than they had before, except to say who shall speak and decide for them. It is a monarchy without a monarch, a vote without a voice. That system merely decides who shall govern, not what they should govern for. It is the opposite of a democracy, not government of the people, by the people, for the people, but rather government of the people by an authority that decides for itself what government will be for, and that, in the case of the president, has no accountability to the people beyond what he might freely choose. The US president's only accountability is to uphold the American Constitution. It is to uphold nothing other than the thing that gives him power. Insofar as that Constitution grants some rights and liberties to the American people, it might appear to be as democratic as might be necessary for, quote, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, unquote. 
But while that new nation has endured, as Lincoln at Gettysburg hoped it would, it has not lived up to its promise, particularly in terms of equality. Indeed, the people of America gained relatively little in terms of enduring rights or secure blessings of liberty in exchange for surrendering power completely. As payment for giving up hope of a voice, the Republic really only offered them one thing, protection from invasion and domestic violence, meaning civil war. Again, this is pure Hobbes. This is not to say that Americans had a choice about the type of state they could build at the time. Any other less autocratic option would have exposed them to potential annihilation at birth. It would have robbed them of the means of organising their defence from the primary threat of military invasion. There was a point to the Hobbesian state in America in the 18th century, a compelling point, which might be summed up as organise civilly or die. As it turned out, the republic that the United States built as a modified form of the modern state certainly worked to help protect them from external invasion. It did not work at all to protect them from internal invasions, states plundering each other and killing on an unprecedented scale as they did only a few decades later. But insofar as it compelled the formation of a union capable of averting the perceived external existential threat as the new nation's fragile and vulnerable independence was declared, the modern Hobbesian style of state was a triumph in the US. In the process, however, democracy was necessarily sacrificed to defence considerations. There were remarkable attempts to establish the United States, at least as a partial democracy, by encoding human rights in the Constitution and by establishing a system of separations, checks and balances in power. But the human rights applied only to a select few, and the checks and balances were often flouted. Accordingly, as the centuries rolled on, America eventually calcified into a form of the state where the originally intended general welfare of the people is almost entirely subordinated to considerations of defence and the military. Just about everything today in the American polity is geared to enable war at the will of that sovereign state, and the result is that, quote, the US has never had a decade without war. Since its founding in 1776, the US has been at war 93% of the time. The US has launched 201 out of 248 armed conflicts since the end of World War II, unquote. The modern American state, inasmuch as it remains in its original Republican form, largely unamended, appears to offer the people of America very little in well-being and security today beyond what may be achieved by almost continuous war. The United States has achieved its primary aim of secure existence, but at the expense of just about everything that makes existence worthwhile for many millions of its people. It is a great state, but a failing one, in terms of inequality of income, wealth and well-being. And that failure will accelerate if America refuses to lift its system of representative government 
up to a more inclusive democracy. The state cannot achieve government of the people, by the people, for the people, if it does not grant the people a reasonable share of power. A vote does not do that, nor will it, until it becomes a voice. America is unlikely to comprehend all that at this late stage of its calcified republic. It could, in theory, still scale up to a more open participatory democracy in time to deal with critical issues at the national level in relation to securing well-being for its people, but there is little evidence of a will in that direction or comprehension of a need. As such, America's capacity to lead the free world on the international stage and to prove that its form of democracy is the best is likely to be severely diminished. Australia, however, has the benefit of an example before it of a proposition from First Nations which in effect is seeking to place voices above, or at least before, votes and is thereby offering a model of democracy that I will argue can deliver the freedoms, well-being and security we want more reliably than the current American model. It might be said that two different models for the future of our democracy are on offer here. One is the American model, a model to which many Australians will look if they are keen to improve the capacity of their democracy, but which they are likely to find has not delivered either well-being or security to its people. I would suggest this failure stems at least in part from the exclusivity of the republican form of government in the US Constitution. Despite its emphasis on rights and freedoms, it is essentially still designed to exclude many of the voices of Americans. By contrast, the other model that is inspired by the First Nations voice offers Australia the potential to scale up to a full, strong, enabling democracy, the sort that can only arise from a significant increase in participation by people, not in politics or at the ballot box, but in national direction setting and specification of a coherent will. In other words, it inspires us to consider the benefits that may arise from including the voices of all Australians in our democratic processes. It is important to understand the differences between these two models, particularly insofar as they offer quite different possibilities for Australia's future as an independent sovereign nation whose people will have greater capacity for self-determination than they do now. In the early 2020s, independence in sovereignty is very much at risk in Australia due to the federal government preferences for a tightened alliance with the United States for defence purposes and a simultaneous preference not to involve the Australian people in any decision on defence or the extent of strategic alliances. The newly elected Labor government in 2022 was keen to engage in conversations with Australians on well-being and an Indigenous voice, but not on defence and independence in sovereignty. I will argue in this book that it is essential for Australians to be able to maintain their independence as a nation and to be involved as fully and openly as they wish in all strategic decisions on defence, alliances and war. However, our democracy needs to be adjusted to allow for this involvement, and to ensure that we make the right types of adjustments, we first need to examine the sort of democracy we have now. We need to examine its weaknesses and the risks it poses both to our sovereignty and our capacity for self-determination. Is our current form of democracy, 
in which we have no effective voice beyond voting, capacious enough to ensure that the Australian people can secure their future as an independent sovereign nation. In the next sections, I will argue that it is not, and that a choice of an inclusive model of democracy will offer far greater control over our future security than would be possible compared to versions of democracy that will allow for far too much exclusion. I will explain this using America's model of democracy as a point of reference and will suggest that, notwithstanding all its strengths in promoting liberty and liberality, it should not be used as a model for the optimum arrangement of governance for Australia, especially if stability, security and sovereignty in decision-making are key national objectives. <laughs>